Welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers, giving you the motivation and inspiration you need to make the most of your later years. Whether you're still in the planning stages or you're several years in, we'll share stories from boomers who refuse to act their age and continue to live a life inspired. Let them show you how being old can be new if you know what to do with your host, Terry Lorbeer. Hello and welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers. My guest today is Douglas Hughes. Doug landed an ultralight gyrocopter, think flying motorcycle, on the west lawn of the U.S. Capitol building in April 2015 with 35 letters, one to every member of Congress, calling them out for their greed and the role of big money in politics. Doug is back with the book because corruption hasn't changed. Flight Plan is a memoir. 90% of the book covers his story, including a personal tragedy that created the frame of mind for such a radical stunt. And what happened afterward, the media firestorm and the vindictive prosecutor pushing charges carrying potentially nine years in prison. The other 10% scattered with a light footprint is the true topic of the book. What institutional graph is, how it functions, and how we can end it. Citizens know corruption exists like an obscene deformity of what democracy should be. They don't want to look because they fear there is no cure. And there is. The remedy for institutional graft is nonpartisan, easy to understand, and it makes fixing everything else possible. This is a longer introduction than usual, but I wanted you to have Doug's background before we dive into my conversation with Doug. Welcome, Doug. How are you today? Well, thanks for having me on, Terry. You're welcome. I'm happy to have you. You obviously took massive action as a mailman that affected your entire world. Tell us your story and are you sorry you landed on the West Lawn of the U.S. Capitol building in 2015? No. I, you know, it's funny. That was a question that was asked repeatedly during the year between the flight and my sentencing. And I am I am not sorry. There was no injury. There was no property damage. That was my intent. And I did have the opportunity to bring up the issue of big money in politics and why it's crucial that we end it. It was risky and I did pay a price, but the benefit, I think, overall was worth it. But you did pay a big price because you had to retire from the post office, and I'm sure it changed your whole life, your family life. So is your family okay with what you did, and they're still behind you? My wife was never in support of the idea. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't kill me or divorce me. So well, I guess that's, that's good support. news. That's yeah, good news, both Doug. of them. <laughs> Because she could divorce would have been an option, but I'm glad she didn't because, you know, you stood up for what you you thought and uh, you stood up for your values. And I applaud that. I think that more of us need to do that. Well, I did not give her an option about whether or not I was going to do the flight. And she recognized that for me to do this was the only way that she could save me. So she took a bigger risk than I did. 
Yeah, she did. But I, I'm happy that she did that. And and I would have done the same thing. And like my podcast, um, my husband's not totally on board with it, but he recognizes the fact that it's something I have to do and you're not going to stop me. So you might as well just kind of give me the support you can. He's not, a, you know, 100% behind it, but but he's also hasn't divorced me so. <laughs> because my podcast right now, I'm not earning anything. I'm paying all the expenses. So it costs money. It doesn't make any money, but I feel it's important podcast to be out there. So he is, he is, you know, he's trying to help me as much as he can. So, so I understand your wife's position and I'm glad that, you know, I'm sure now she's still behind you and life has changed though. Totally for you. Hasn't it? Well, I knew that it. I knew that the day that I delivered the mail, mm -hmm. five hundred and thirty-five letters at the U.S. Capitol building, I knew that I wouldn't ever deliver any more mail for the U.S. Postal Service, and that's how it turned out to be. I was on a paid status during an investigation, the results of which were completely set in stone from the time I landed, and they fired me on the Fourth of July, as it were. Fourth of July. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. I received I received a certified letter that was the formal decision that the post office was going to fire me on the third of July, and the letter said that it became official the day after that. So oh I was technically goodness. I was technically fired on the fourth of July. Now I I grieved it through uh -huh. the union to the postal union, and that put a stop on the process, mm -hmm. and it gave me actually the three, uh, I needed three months more service with the post office in order to qualify for the pension that I had earned because that, that would have put me at 10 years. Huh? Okay. I actually had 13 years in, but the first three years were as a substitute and they don't count towards retirement. So I was three months short of qualifying for what I had earned. Wow. And after I went over that 10 year mark, Mm -hmm. Then the union offered to have me withdraw the grievance and retire as long as the post office went ahead and gave me the benefits that I had earned. So I technically retired mm -hmm. after I was fired. And I actually got a letter of commendation a few months later, the form letter that they sent at yeah. exploit, thanking me for my years of service and my contribution. It's pretty funny. We're going to thank you for your service. Oh, my God, that's yeah. funny. Probably it's kind of like being letter. lined up, kind of like being lined up to be executed by firing squad right. and then getting the purple heart. Right. There you go. That's so funny. You know, I worked as a letter carrier back in the 80s. So I know what your job entailed. And I was a part time flexi. That's what they called them. So I really yeah. didn't have any. Uh, I worked there a year and a half, but I probably didn't accrue any any benefits. And you didn't get the same benefits that regular letter uh, letter carriers did. So I wound up quitting because I could never get time off in the summer. And I had young kids at home and I wanted to spend time with my children. I couldn't even get a week off during the summer because everyone had seniority over me. I was new and they were taking their week. So I would get one in September, October, but I wanted a week in the summer. So I at least have one week home with my kids. So I wound up quitting over that issue and went into sales, which was a lot more flexible. And I could spend a lot more time with my kids. So that was great. That's that's why I left. And people thought I was crazy. You got a job at the post office and you walked away? You're nuts. And I'm like, no, I had to do it for my kids. I had to. So <laughs> everybody has to start as a substitute carrier. 
Yep. They call they get different names for it in the different crafts, but they get nothing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for the post office, getting through that phase is it's the post office version of the game of Survivor. Right. You just you have to yeah just have stay to in there and deal with the the junk. No hours this week. Getting killed that month. Right. And no no power at all over your own destiny until you become regular. Right. Until like in job. my case, I had to get my own route in order to be counted as a regular letter carrier. Even though I was, I did work every day. I had at least 40 hours a week because I guess where I was outside of Philadelphia was busy. So they needed me, but I, I, you know, I wasn't counted as a regular employee. So when my mother passed away while I was delivering mail, I didn't get any time off. I had, they did give me some vacation time, but I had to take my vacation time when my mother died because they're not going to give you any extra time. Whereas if I was a regular postal employee, I would have been entitled to time off when my mother passed away. So But whatever. I mean, I moved on and I did other things and I'm happy I did. But it was very good to be there for that year and a half because it's a much more difficult job than you think. You know, you just you you see them coming around. You think, oh, it's not that bad. So you're carrying mail. There's so many times trip and fall hazards. I got bitten by a dog this summer. I was there. I was the only one in the whole office that got bitten by a dog. There's a lot of hazards out there that you're not aware of unless you're out there delivering mail. So, and the weather. The weather is horrible. Yes. Well, that's where the trip and fall comes in when there's ice and there's snow and, you know, there's other tripping hazards too. But yeah, it's it was a much more difficult job than I thought. So I applaud you for doing it for the 10 years. That's great. I'm glad you got your pension. You deserved it. I think that was fair. So, but now it's been almost seven years since you landed on the Capitol lawn. Have you seen any progress being made? Do you feel like you've made some inroads? Nothing that I can score directly to me. There's certainly been a growth among the groups that are working to end big money in politics. That was one of the benefits that certainly the press never knew about or observed, but I got feedback from the groups. And and there's a real mix. Uh, There's about a half dozen. And in my book, after the epilogue, I have got a few pages that are a call to action where I list the groups where I know the leaders personally, and I point at their websites. And my suggestion is find the group that you feel comfortable with, mm-hmm. join, read the emails that they send out, and do whatever you can, whatever you feel comfortable with. Right. It's not It's not that I want all people to put their lives at risk in this. What we need is millions of people who will engage to the degree that they can after they understand right. why the impediment to solving the things that you care about is almost certainly big money. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think we all recognize that. I think all of us recognize big money is a problem. It really is. Big money has the ear of your congressperson, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, with a few very rare and wonderful exceptions on mm-hmm. both sides of the aisle. Right. But generally, if you want the attention of government to address the thing that you think is important, he's listening first and most carefully to big money. And you're only going to get service if it doesn't conflict with their profits. Right. I agree. It's not good, but yeah. So you said you have a remedy for this institutional grab. So do you want to explain that a little bit to my audience, what your remedy is? The whole basis of my proposed remedy is built around the... There's a bottleneck 
the solutions that we have to have will have to be passed by Congress. Okay. And Congress is benefiting from the graft. Therefore, there is always a majority because the Democrats will work with the Republicans to make sure that no reform ever happens. Yep. So the bottleneck is Congress. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not that we don't know what the solutions are. That's not a that's not a surprise. The thing is getting Congress to do what will essentially build a wall of separation between big money and our government. Right. Big money will still exist. It's just they can't use that weapon in trying to get their way. So the solution is a wall of separation between big money and our government. The problem is Congress won't ever pass it. And the solution to that is, do you remember Eric Cantor? Yes. Mm-hmm. Eric Cantor would have been the Speaker of the House after John Boehner. Wow. Okay? It, was, it was already decided that Boehner was going to step down. It was already decided that Eric Cantor would, would take his place. Mm-hmm. But most people don't remember Eric Cantor's name. He was the number two guy in the House of Representatives at that time. And he lost his election in a bright red district wow. in Richmond, Virginia. Okay, mm-hmm. He didn't lose his election to a Democrat. He lost in the primary because the Tea Party in Virginia had approached Eric Cantor about the issues for the voters, for the people Mm -hmm. that they wanted to see advanced. And Eric Cantor, I would guess, was fairly belligerent and obvious in telling them that he was serving Wall Street, not the Tea Party. They were just supposed to vote for him, shut up and go away because he was... He had his nose that far up their behinds in, in Wall Street. Yeah. Well, the, the Tea Party, as I understand it, they got ticked, okay? Not just from his position, but the rudeness with which he told them to go away like children. Right. And they organized, not only in the 7th District of Virginia, but nationally. Oh, wow. And they raised money, and they found somebody who had never run for office before, a guy by the name of Dave Bratt. Uh, a university economics professor, but a Tea Party guy all the way through. And they ran him against Eric Cantor in the primary. Eric Cantor outspent Dave Bratt 10 to 1 and still lost. Wow. When he had name recognition, a bottomless well of money to draw from, and the advantage of being incumbent, Mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, which is you. They blew him away, okay? Wow. And you go, how is that possible? No amount of money will change, significantly change the turnout in the primary election, which is low. Right, right. People turn out in November for the general. That's the real election, okay? Right. All right. those other peddling elections don't count. Well, the Tea Party organized and they sent out the word, the primary election is the election. If we all recognize that we all need to show up, we've got leverage. Because the turnout is going to be down. So a smaller number of people have got the political power. Okay. In fact, the number of people it took to bounce Eric Cantor was less than 4% of the population of Virginia's 7th District. That's how much leverage the voters have Mm. in the primary. Now, Dave Brett came in, and I don't agree with him as a progressive on mm-hmm. most of his policy issues, mm-hmm. but he was an honest guy and he did his level best in Congress to represent all of the people of 
Virginia's seventh district. Mm -hmm. But from this, I realized that since the objective has to be replacing a majority of the corrupt members of Congress with honest people, and I recognize that I don't agree with Dave Bratt politically, but I recognize him as an honest representative of the people, it occurred to me, wait, what if we nationalized the issue of big money in politics? And in a blue district, okay, we didn't try to replace the Democrat with a Republican, but we replaced the crooked Democratic incumbent with an honest Democratic incumbent. And this would be a person who is a progressive. Mm -hmm. So what? If they're honest, right. they are a better representative than if they're sold out to, right. to Wall Street or K Street. Mm -hmm. And on exactly the same agenda of ending the rule of big money, in the red district, we replace, as the Tea Party did successfully prove, what if we replace the crooked Republican incumbent with an honest incumbent? Now you wind up with a majority in Congress, not necessarily Democrats, not necessarily Republicans, but a reformist, a clear reformist majority who is working from the same, whether you call it a pledge or whatever, but they're working from the same exact agreement about what reform means. Right. Okay. And they would caucus together and make getting big money out of politics the primary issue. I, I, I hate to go on that long, but you asked me the question. Right. And, and it and that's, sounds that's so where, easy. Yeah. It sounds so easy, but I think so we've got to get people working on that. And that's the hard part, getting local people locally working on getting those corrupt people out. The other thing is they're in Congress way too long. They shouldn't be in for 30 and 40 years. That's crazy because you get more corrupt the longer you're in. Okay, so, let me let me let me address term limits mm -hmm. because I believe the founding fathers addressed the issue properly with what we call elections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. The problem is this. When there's an open seat in Congress, whether it's a blue, de okay, 85%, this is according to Cook political reports, 85% of the House districts have a distinct majority, something over 60% leaning either Democrat or Republican. So like in Nebraska, it's going to be red all the way through. You almost can't carve a blue district in Nebraska. Northern California, Republicans are an endangered species. 85% of the House districts have a distinct majority to them. Right. This is how we do this, is the Democrats find Democrats and the Republicans find Republicans. Right. But what we have to get through to in Nebraska, the grassroots voter activists will probably be Tea Party or some other label that's the equivalent. That's whom I have to reach with exactly the same message as progressive Democrats. Right. That instead of trying to win the election on a partisan basis, we're going to win the election by finding somebody who will sign on 100% to the same pledge as the opposition is. Right. And this goes back to what I was saying about the groups. Okay. There, one of the groups is, has got a definite conservative flavor. Let's take back our republic. Run by a guy named John Pudner, okay, whom I know personally and don't agree with politically. Right. But he's certainly a friend of mine and he's absolutely sincere about getting big money in politics. But his credentials, he was behind the guy, Dave Bratt, who replaced Eric Cantor. 
he was, I'm going to say, although he might not, the mastermind behind that camp, that successful campaign. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's the real deal. He has got the political experience and he's formed this group, Take Back Our Republic. And yeah, a conservative would probably feel more comfortable with them than they would with a group called Wolfpack. Okay. Although they are both technically and have to be nonpartisan. There's, there's, but that's cool. John Putner works with the leaders of these other groups. Okay. So that's great. Great. The leadership, the leadership has to work together, but you can stay with the group where you feel comfortable. That's good news. That's really great. And I think as boomers, we have more time available to us. And this is a great option for us to put our energy behind because I keep telling my boomers, get up off the couch. You know, once you're retired, uh, you can't just sit around for the next 30 years. And, you know, we need to help our younger, you know, our children and our grandchildren. So get involved. Like I couldn't get involved in politics when I was younger. I was busy raising four kids, working all the time. You didn't have time. You taking care of a house. But now that we're boomers, we have the time and we owe it to our government to start raising our voices and doing things like this. Just my opinion. Mm -hmm. But the real consolidation of political power to support big business happened under my watch. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't see it happening until we reached this point. But as I look back over decades of political stuff that happened, yeah, the money in politics has always had some influence. It is now control, not influence. Right, right. Okay. It's got it happened yeah. on my watch as a voter. Right. Okay. I want that to be reversed before I die. Right. I don't believe I'm going to solve all of the problems that I care about in my lifetime. But if I solve this one thing, right, then what happens is I restore political power to my kids and my grandkids. Right. To the and people. I believe they can do it. But they can't do anything now under the situation that exists. And a lot of them, they are not apathetic, but they just know that it won't make any difference because they're right. It won't make any difference until we get the money out. Because when we have the money out, I I love the way Mitt Romney described self-deportation. He was talking about Mexicans. But the same thing will happen when you get big money out of politics. The crooks in Washington, D.C., will self-deport because they, they, they do not, they don't want to go to jail. Right. right now, the gravy train is legal for them and they know they never mm-hmm. stand a chance of going to jail. If the only avenue that's left is illegal uh, cor- corruption, illegally secretly taking money, right. these guys are at risk of going to prison with big ugly dudes. By the way, I went to prison. Mm. They don't want no. that. They're scared to death of it. They will leave and find a different way to cheat and steal that doesn't okay so what happens is if you make big money in politics illegal okay 100% of the people who are in Washington or a number very close to that are honest now half of them will be people that i disagree with politically okay and that's going to be true of conservatives but what if i know i'm dealing with my republican counterpart and i know this is an honest person right. my attitude shifts and his towards me. Right. And we start to listen to each other and we start to try to find areas of agreement in trying to write bills that will properly represent conservatives and liberals. And again, as I hinted to my decades of political observation, I've been wrong plenty of times. 
about whether or not a conservative idea was a good idea when it was put into practice. And I'm not going to ask you to make the counterpoint or equivalent concession, but I absolutely am in this for the results, not the means. Okay. If a method works to achieve what we want, I'll take it. Yeah. And right now, Right now, neither side's happy. Democrats aren't happy. Republicans, we're not happy with what's happening. We're not getting what either of us want. So I think if we get more honest people in there, they'll come together and they'll give us what we want. And like you said, sometimes it'll be conservative. Sometimes it won't. It'll be fine. But right now, nobody's happy. We're all unhappy with what's happening in Washington. I believe 90% of us are unhappy. Yeah. So I agree. And it's because of big money. You're right. When I was, when I had, kids. My first marriage, I was in a place called Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And although North Carolina then in the 80s was ranking like 47th or 48th among 50 states as far as bad education, the Chapel Hill School District was head and shoulders, not just above the state, but it was well in their the ranking nationally in terms of how well they did. And I asked one of the teachers for one of my kids, I said, what are you doing that's working so well? And he says, it's easy. We've got a formula. He said, first, we establish what it is we'd like to do. Second, we establish how we're going to measure whether or not we've achieved what it is we're trying to do. Right. Finally, he said, we try something and we measure it. If it works, we expand on it. If it doesn't, we try something else. There you go. <laughs> this is, this is the, the essence of wisdom. Here, okay, that instead of being married to your idea, you're married to the measurable result that you intended. Right. If it works, then great. If it doesn't, you don't take it personally. You don't cling to it like you know driftwood keeps from drowning. You say, "Oh well, I tried. We tried. It didn't work. What's the other option that we could try?" Correct. Yeah. And but both sides in Congress are not doing anything as far as saying this is what the measurable metric of right. whether or not this is working. Okay. Right. If you if you think that cutting taxes will actually increase revenue because of increased economic growth, you should say, okay, this is how we're going to measure that right. cutting taxes will co- if it doesn't happen, right. you need to admit that cutting taxes does not stimulate economic growth. Not Okay, not to a degree that it replaces the income that you were cut. And this has been said over and over. And as I read the statistics, it's never actually happened that way. But but the thing is, when you go in, you say, this is what we're going to try and this is what we hope to achieve. You should say, this is how we're going to measure it. And if your measurement says that it didn't do what you were intending, admit you want to go on and try something else. Right. But that won't happen. <laughs> right now, right now, this it, won't happen. It, Again, it has happened. It has happened. It, it, it did has happen. happen. And it, it did happen happened. in that Chapel Hill School District with incredible results. Right. And right. I think a lot of people who are in politics need to hear that and need to start saying it. Right. And they need and they need to right. go at it from a result perspective rather than a personal attachment. Right. But I think we need to get more people out of Congress first so we can do it. There aren't, like you said, there aren't enough honest people in Congress right now on both sides so that we can't really do that yet, I don't think. Let let me go to that, Terry, because I think it's important and you're you're right. What happens when there's an open seat in Congress Mm -hmm. because they're tilted 
to a majority. If it's a red district, the person who is chosen to replace the person who's retiring right. is selected by the party, the right. state party organization. Right. There is a primary election, mm-hmm. but the party selected, so let's say it's Democrats. The Democratic Party in, in California decided this district is opening up. It's a blue district. Here is our person. And it's somebody who's been in the party machine right. for decades right. and has graduated to the level where the party says, Tag, you're the next in line. Okay. Right. The, and, and so the suggestion that term limits will fix this mm-hmm. implies that you think that both parties will run out of corrupt people to send. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure about that. You're right. Okay. <laughs> now, what needs to happen is you take the money out of politics and you say the political parties also will not be able to contribute money to anybody's campaign. Right. Okay. Now the primary becomes a straight and level primary of in a red district, Republican contenders against Republican contenders, mm-hmm. where they have to raise money, but they can't raise big money. They can't get corporate money. Right. And they can't tie into the machine. Right. Now you're talking about a contest of ideas. Mm-hmm. And the voters if they start to recognize that, wait, if there's an open seat contest, I need to pay attention to this. Right. Because if I don't, it's going to be the most vocal group who's going to wind up getting their person right. in Congress. Right. So the so you raise voter awareness you and you also get voter engagement. Please know this isn't partisan at all. Right. Okay. Right. What I'm suggesting is the Democrats will have to get engaged in that blue district and right. the Republicans in the red district, but you take the party out of it. Right. You're going to get a representative in Congress who's representing the people. Yeah. Instead of money. And that eliminates the need for term limits. Right. Right. Yeah, I can see that. But it's that's going to take a while to do that because it takes time, you know, to get the people. Absolutely. But we're but the, well, you got to start both, somewhere. Both parties, both parties have occasionally produced great leaders. Mm-hmm. Okay, and as a voter, my ability, my voting power is diluted if the government says you can't vote for this person again. Wait, right? I'm the voter. It's my freaking vote. Don't tell me I can't vote for that person when he's been doing a great job. And right. all he did was run up against an artificial barrier of how many times, how many years he's been in office. Right. I, I simply don't, don't agree with that. But you're right. The way it's set up right now, the primary system installs the party selected candidates. And right. that needs to go away. Right. Right. So we've got to get involved on a grassroots level to help that happen. Correct. I don't yes. think it happens by itself. We've got to get involved on our local lever to make that le- local level to make that happen. So, and really, we got to we got to pull. And Republicans that I know are significant party machine. Okay, the voters are sincere. The party machine has got an artificial set of rules, right. standards, and priorities. Right. They aren't ours. Okay, right. So I'm talking about empowering the voter on a nonpartisan basis and getting representation where those people 
go into office intending to represent us instead of representing the machine or the corporations. Right, right. Well, it sounds like a good thing. I, I'm going to encourage my audience to get that information from your book, join some of these grassroots organizations, because that's where it starts. It's got to start locally, right? Yeah, it's going to start locally. Mm-hmm. And you can, I, I've absolutely identified in my own mind, and most people agree with me, you will not get either party or anybody in the establishment to write reform. Right, correct. If they write it, they're going to write loopholes you can fly a 747 through. Right, right. Okay? I agree. <laughs> so where's, where is the wisdom to write these standards going to come from? Because I don't believe it's a mailman. Mm-hmm. It, it's not me. Okay. But John Pedner and Lawrence Lessig and da, 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 these people who are running these groups and they have been studying the problem for years, they know. They know exactly what provisions need to be in the law and how this stuff needs to be worded so there aren't loopholes. Okay. The people who are running these reform groups have the qualifications to write the reform. And that is what's delivered in the pledge. And right. that's what exists in the laws that the Reformist Congress can pass. Uh, this can be done. It, it's a whole lot more likely that we can succeed here than we might have succeeded in 1776. Right. Okay? right. Because we have the voting power. All we have to do is recognize that we have the power and exert right. it. And right. we're going to have to do something that goes against the grain. We're going to have to trust and work with people on the other side. I'm talking about voters working with voters right. to empower voters. Right. Okay. And I'm not talking about, let's just sneak in. We're going to empower Democrats and progressives. Right. I'm not saying that. And, and this is empowering voters for the government to represent us. Right. I don't ask any conservative to modify or step away from their convictions, right. nor will I or should any progressive Right. Be arm twisted into stepping away from their beliefs. Everybody goes into office with their beliefs as they are. Which is fine. And then you work together, which Congress is not working together anymore. It used yeah, they're working for the money. But yeah, it's big money. I agree. Totally agree. So so where can my audience reach you if they want to buy your book or they want to contact you or contact one of these organizations? How do they go about doing that? Okay, dear. Um the book is available on Amazon. Okay. okay, you can search for it by author's name or by title, and the title of the book is Flight Plan. Mm-hmm. If you'd like an autographed copy of the book, you can get that through my website, and I spent a long time thinking about the name for my website. It is DougHughesAuthor.com. <laughs> that did take a while. <laughs> uh, that's, that's tricky. Okay, and I will tell you that you, although, although the website lists a different price for an autographed copy, Everything that's going out is going out as an autograph. Okay. So for it's, I think it's seventeen ninety nine. You can get an autograph copy of the book, and I'll send that out for my house personally. Uh, you can also contact me through the website. Mm-hmm. And what I'm planning on doing this year, if I can, is a tour of the lower forty eight states to every state capital by gyrocopter. Oh my gosh, by gyrocopter! <laughs> that's Awesome. <laughs> it would be it would be four months, uh-huh. ten thousand miles. Wow. Okay. And the idea is for me to get the word out through the local media because I cannot get 
the word out to the national media mm-hmm. and to promote the ideas because a lot of those 48 states are bright red. Yeah. And it doesn't scare me at all. Okay. It should. Because yeah. as it was with you. Right. I pointed out to you up front, I am not your enemy. Right. Okay. And that's always worked for me. Every time I've talked to somebody who's conservative right. with that suggestion, and they'll test me and they'll say, does he really mean it? I do. They're saying, okay, I'm willing to listen to this guy. And after they listen and they realize I'm not trying to get an advantage, I'm right. trying to empower all voters. Right. I have yet not to have the full-throated endorsement of this idea. Right. Because the problem is not Democrat versus Republican. The problem is money in Congress and nothing gets done and nobody's happy. So we all kind of recognize that because sometimes it's going to be the conservative view. Sometimes it's going to be the more le- we're fine with that. But right now, like you said, money is the ruler. Money is is doing everything. And we're not. We, the people, are not empowered anymore. So we need to take our power back. And what the candidate with the incumbents in Congress know, and both political parties know, mm-hmm. and they are scared to death that we will find out, right. is that we have the power right. in the primary. Right. Okay. Right. We have the power in the primary yep. if we if we exert the power. But neither party can do it alone. Right. The only way we establish a majority is if we do it, Democrats and Republicans right. working together, where we're singing from the same song sheet. Right. Which is perfect. I think that's great. So I'll have all of Doug's information in the show notes. So if you didn't have time to write down, uh, you know, where to get the book or the name of the book or anything like that, just go to kickassboomers.com. Click on Doug's picture. The show notes will pop up. I also will have links in there to some of his interviews from 2015. So you can learn a little bit more about Doug. They're very interesting. They're fun to watch, but they'll teach you that. You know what? We need to start taking back our sovereignty. We need to, to learn how to take back our power. We have it. We just let it go over the years. We need to take it back. And the boomers are the perfect people to do it. Because like I said, we've got a little bit of time now, more so than younger people that are raising families and busy. So what better use of our time than to spend time getting our government back? I think it's a great idea. So thank you for being my guest today. This has been great. And I do hope that you are inspiring people to go out and take control back and to do more in the primaries. I agree. That's the place to start. Thanks for having me on, Terry. This is how we do it. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. This has been very inspiring. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Kick-Ass Boomers. For more information on today's guest, along with the show notes and other inspiring resources, buzz on over to kickassboomers.com. And don't forget to join our Kick-Ass community on Facebook or LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Be bold, not old.